It's great to return to these chapters in Matthew's Gospel. We've had a little break over the last few weeks looking at at something different, uh, but otherwise we've been working through these chapters this uh, term, looking at what happened when God came down, and particularly the authority of Jesus. And a few weeks ago we saw Jesus' followers asking an absolutely critical question about Jesus. If you look at uh, verse 27 in chapter 8 on that same page, 973, Jesus has just calmed a storm with a word, just like that. And his followers, the disciples, are reeling in amazement. What kind of man is this? And it's the central question of these chapters. Who is this who can do these extraordinary things with such clear authority over sickness, over sin, over the natural world, over evil, even over death, we will see in a week or two's time. Matthew is writing to convince his readers that they need to sit up and take notice of Jesus. He's not just a prophet, he's not just a good teacher, he's not just some guy who started a religious movement by mistake, he's God on earth as a man with all of God's authority to do what God does. And that's what we've been seeing so far. Matthew has at least two types of person in mind as he writes. He has the person who is a skeptic, who's yet to follow Jesus for themselves. And he wants that person to be convinced that Jesus is worth taking seriously. And I'm sure there will be some in that position here today, as there always are week by week here with us, people looking into these things. Matthew is writing so that you might be convinced of who Jesus is and of what that means for your life. And then also there's the person who's already following Jesus. And and, and he wants that person to understand what it means to follow someone with this kind of authority. And if you've been here, remember where this is heading in the next couple of chapters. By the end of chapter 9, Jesus is sending his followers out with the authority that he has just demonstrated. So they need to know what kind of authority that is before he sends them out. And they're going to encounter opposition, he says in chapter 10, and we will see in a few weeks. So they need to be convinced that they can trust Jesus when that happens, and that they represent somebody who really does have authority. But getting Jesus' identity right is only the first step in establishing the kind of authority that he has. The question is not just who he is, the question is also why did he come? What is he going to do with this extraordinary authority that he has over sickness and sin and the natural world and evil and even death? He can, he can uh, put, put those things down with just a word, but what's he going to do with that? And that is the question the demons asked at the end of chapter 8. What do you want with us? Have you come to torture us? In other words, why, Jesus, have you come? What are you doing here with all this authority? What are you about Because it's possible to kind of understand who somebody is, but not understand what they're about. I suppose I said to you, what do you make of Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt? And you said, well, you know, I'd have question marks over either of them playing cricket for England. They definitely won't help us win the Ashes. Well, you've completely misunderstood what they're about. And we need to make sure we don't do the same with Jesus. 
So why did he come? That's what we're going to see in these verses. Two things to see. First of all, then, from verses 9 and 10 in chapter 9, Jesus came for sinners. Jesus came for sinners. In in these chapters, there are lots of, of miraculous healings, really extraordinary things which go on, but then suddenly, in the middle of all that, we get this little episode with Matthew, which at face value looks a whole lot less dramatic than maybe a paralysed man walking again or a storm being calmed with a word. Well, the church has always identified Matthew, who's, who's, who's identified here, as the author of this gospel. That may be why that is here in one sense. But what is more significant and easy for us to miss is just how significant and dramatic it would have been for Jesus to interact with Matthew like this. It was a big shock to see him doing all these extraordinary miracles. This was a big shock too. Because Matthew was a tax collector, which meant he was a collaborator with the hated Roman occupiers because he was collecting tax on their behalf. And and with that, he was probably a fraudster and a crook, you know, kind of taking a a sizable personal commission from whatever he collected from the people of Israel. Now, I don't know what the equivalent today would be in terms of having what you might call a low approval rating in the general population. I don't know, maybe a traffic warden. I don't mean to offend any traffic wardens here. Uh, But uh, living here in Hampstead, from time to time, you run into situations on these streets around here where you see the kind of anger that traffic wardens have to endure on a daily basis. I saw, saw, this is literally true, I saw a woman the other day uh, staging a sit-down protest in the middle of the road because of the ticket that she'd been given. And she sat there and she shouted at the traffic warden. It didn't last all that long, the protest, and life carried on. But actually, perhaps the idea of Jesus calling a traffic warden to follow him wouldn't actually be that big a deal. So let's sharpen it a bit. What if if it was a convicted drug dealer? What if it was two gay men who were married to each other? And then change the story slightly. What if the people looking on weren't first century Pharisees, but 21st century evangelical Christians, Christians like us? What is Jesus doing calling people like that to follow him, people might say? What is he doing entertaining them? What is he doing partying with them? Is he completely mad? Does he not realise what the Bible says about these things? Maybe substitute your own moral standard of choice into the story and consider how it would feel to see Jesus associating and choosing to spend his time with the very people practising those things. If it feels uncomfortable, if it feels unsettling, then you're beginning to feel the impact of what these verses are about. Because what we need to understand, first of all, is that Jesus came for sinners. He didn't come for the sorted, for the respectable, for those who've somehow got it together. He came for sinners. And calling Matthew the the tax collector, Jesus doing that, that shows us no one is too 
bad. There's no minimum level of achievement required to win his favour. There's no exam, there's no pass mark, there's no annual appraisal with the threat of redundancy for underperformance. We need to know that for ourselves and we need to know that for those around us too. So that we don't look at others and think they're not good enough for God. He starts with us, wherever we are, whoever we are, whatever our background, whatever we've done, whatever we're ashamed of. Now, of course, then, when anyone follows Jesus, life will never be the same again. And the call to to Matthew to follow Jesus was a call to leave behind his tax collector's booth. He was called out of that life and into a life of following Jesus, eating with him, living alongside him, learning from him. And even as he does that, Jesus doesn't then affirm Matthew's sin, but he calls him to leave it behind. And that will be the same for anybody who responds to that call to follow Jesus. Life will never be the same again. Jesus came to call sinners, any sinner. And it's as if he says, come as you are, but not to stay as you are. So we need, to, we need to be clear what that means, because sometimes we can make out that there's a, there's a kind of hierarchy of cost to following Jesus, as if the notorious sinner has way more to leave behind than, you know, maybe the comfortable, middle-class, happily married, stable job, but not following Jesus person. You know, think of all the things a drug dealer has to leave behind if they're going to follow Jesus. All the repenting they've got to do, the things they've got to turn their back on. We might say similar things about the, the high cost of following Jesus for a gay couple who, who recognise what the Bible teaches about sex being intended for marriage between a man and a woman. And I say, oh yeah, that's a big, big cost to be recognised there. But what difference do we think it will make to a comfortable, middle-class, happily married person with a stable job if they start following Jesus? Well, I'm not sure, really. That's not okay, is it? And that's why we need to hear, then, the second half of these verses. Jesus came for sinners. Jesus came only for sinners. Verses 11 to 13. So the Pharisees, these guys, were, they were a group of religious experts who were well known for their strict adherence to the law of Moses. You know, if anybody was going to be in with God, it was these guys. And verse 11, they can't believe their eyes, as we've seen, when they, when they see who Jesus is having dinner with. And there's, there's a hint of sarcasm as they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. Because if he was a kind of teacher worth following, he'd have realised, you don't hang out with those guys. If you want to be a proper teacher, you come and hang out with us. And Jesus hears their question, and his response is sharp. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, there are a number of doctors here. I wonder if any of them have ever conducted a consultation with a patient who has walked in and the doctor says, how can I help you today? And the patient says, I just wanted to come and tell you how perfectly well I feel 
today. Never felt better. Now, maybe a patient might say that at the end of a course of treatment in the kind of final consultation or whatever, but there will have been a point where they needed help that they couldn't provide for themselves. The healthy do not need to go near a doctor. So Jesus is saying, that is why I am spending time with sinners, because they know that they need me. And that means that if you think you don't need me, well, you're not the people that I've come for. And the thing is, it's not that Jesus thinks there are genuinely righteous people who, who've got it all together and are living perfect lives and, you know, I didn't really come for you and, and you don't need me. No, no, the reality is actually that category of people is empty. And, and the Bible is very clear on that. The Apostle Paul sums it up in Romans chapter 3. He says, there is no one righteous, not even one. Jesus is saying, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. And he's saying that precisely in order to highlight the sin of those that he is talking to, these Pharisees. Okay then, but what is that sin? Because, well, these Pharisees were upright and religious people. You know, they were the establishment. They could do no wrong in the eyes of the people. They were so scrupulous about not breaking the law of of Moses that they first listed out the 613 commandments that they could a number in the law of Moses that they found in the first five books of the Bible. And then, they, in order not to break those and to be seen to be breaking them, they, they created a whole bunch of extra rules and traditions that acted as what you might call a fence around the law so that you could never get anywhere close to breaking any of these laws. So if you went and examined the life of a Pharisee, Well, you wouldn't find external evidence of theft or murder or adultery. They would have been scrupulous about tithing their income. You could have looked at their bank statements and, and seen what they were spending their money on. They would have been scrupulous about not working on the Sabbath, outwardly living a completely rule keeping life, a respectable life. And it's possible that we might feel like that today. I'm not a sinner, someone might say. I mean, you know, come on, I'm not a paedophile. I'm I'm not a sex offender. I've never done any of these dreadful things that are coming out every day now in these Me Too things on Twitter and the rest of it. I'm not engaged in gang violence. I don't carry a knife around with me. I'm I'm not dealing drugs. Those are your sinners, Those are the people who need a sin doctor. Now, great, yeah, I'm really pleased to hear that there's a saviour for those kind of people. You know, me, not not so much. I lead a, a respectable, upright life. So tell me then, that person might say, what what is my sin? And Jesus points at the answer in the middle of verse 13 there. He says, go and learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And it's a quote from Hosea. We heard it as the opening verse on the front of the service sheet. In the time of the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament, which is about 800 years before Jesus, 
The issue was that God's people were being massively complacent. They could see the sin in everyone else. They could see the godless nations around them. And they assumed that they were immune from God's judgment. And they assumed that because they could point to the legalistic keeping of the law. Well, we do our sacrifices in the temple. Look, I've ticked them off the list. I've been every day. I've done all I'm supposed to do. We are safe. And in chapter 6, as God contends with them and and, and argues with them, he brings his charges to a head in in, in the book of Hosea. And he says here, I desire mercy. That's how it's translated here. That, That same word is often translated steadfast love, covenant love. In other words, God is saying, I don't just want to see outward obedience. And I don't just want to see ticking the box that says I've done my sacrifice. I want to see the life of love that flows from the heart because you know God. It is the prioritising of relationship with God over ritual. So what, it, what then is the sin of the upright, respectable Pharisee? What then is the sin of the upright, respectable, law-abiding member of society today? Well, it's the failure to acknowledge God. That's what he said in Hosea chapter 6. It is the failure to humble ourselves before him and ask him for mercy. Can you see that's precisely what the Pharisees were refusing to do? They were content with the outward form of religion. But the sign that this was actually cutting them off from God was that the fact that when God came to earth in the person of his son, the Messiah, what did they do with God on earth? They rejected him. And actually the fundamental sin of every human being since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, actually the fundamental sin isn't about breaking particular rules of behaviour, although that can be a symptom of it, but it's about rejecting the right place of God in our lives as our creator. Because we think we can go it alone without him. We think we don't need him. So we reject him. And when some people do that, it will lead to obvious moral failure in the eyes of the world. When others do it, actually it will look very respectable. But my mission, says Jesus, is to call sinners. I am a sin doctor. If you think you are healthy, if you think you are righteous, if you think you don't need me, that is a very dangerous place to be. In the end, what matters is not the kind of sin that we've committed and whether it makes us a notorious sinner in the eyes of the world. What matters is whether we will come to Jesus and say, I need you. And one of the symptoms of whether we understand this is then in how we treat others. If I'm a sinner and I'm open about that, how can I ever look down on another human being, whoever they are, whatever they've done? As has been said before, there but for the grace of God go I. 
Now, in in the world today, you can see the same kind of attitude in what has been called the cancel culture. Do you know what I mean by that? You know, those who don't measure up to the standards expected by the great and the good. And it's used, you know, particularly on things like, like Twitter. If you say something that you shouldn't have said in the eyes of the world... You will be cancelled. And that is the word that is used. The, the latest person to be cancelled a couple of weeks ago was the Dalai Lama. Um, he said that if the next Dalai Lama was a woman, she'd better be attractive. That's, that's a pretty crazy thing to say. And I'm no fan of the Dalai Lama, and I wouldn't personally support what he said. But you can see in the responses to this and to many, many other similar situations of which you will be very aware, there's this sense that suddenly people are viewed as if they're a different species. They're shunned. They're the person now that everyone loves to hate. And, And the world is divided into good and bad. And the bad people are dead to us. And provided we can work out who all the bad people are, then the world will be saved. But the problem with that, of course, is that the line between good and evil doesn't run down the middle of the human race somewhere out there. The line between good and evil runs down the middle of each one of us. And sooner or later it will become clear that if we we want to rid the world of sin ourselves, well, actually we're going to have to cancel every other human being until it's just us left and then if we're really honest we're going to have to cancel ourselves as well the alternative is to acknowledge that sin in our own hearts and then see the wonderful news that there is a sin doctor there is a saviour for sinners and then when we come to him and we find that invitation to eat with him to be in relationship with him in other words well we won't be complaining when other sinners come to Jesus whoever they are whatever their backgrounds we'll be rejoicing how else might this spirit of the Pharisee be seen Today, return to the idea of Jesus calling and eating with a with a drug dealer or or, or a gay couple. You know, when Christians say or imply that there are certain people who are somehow beyond God's grace, are we not doing exactly what the Pharisees did here? Now, Jesus never condones sin; he calls everyone to repentance, but he welcomes sinners. Now, a good question for us to ask as a church is whether the culture of our church more resembles the waiting room in A&E or the waiting room for a job interview. You think what the difference might be? You know, in the A&E waiting room, people are coughing and spluttering or, or worse. They are groaning and there's a guy whose arm is definitely not meant to look like that normally they are not hiding their need to see a doctor 
But in the waiting room for a job interview, it's completely different, isn't it? What are you doing? Well, you're smartly dressed. You're trying to look your best. Put your best foot forward. And if you are talking to anyone else in the room, it's just to try and demonstrate to the other candidates how much experience and expertise you have. Because showing any sign of weakness is definitely not what you do. But Jesus came for the sick, not the healthy and the strong. Well, how then might we change that culture? We thought that sometimes we're a bit more like a job interview as a church than the A&E waiting room. Maybe it would be through a willingness to be vulnerable about the things that we struggle with. Whether that's one-to-one with, with people, whether that's in small groups. So that it's clear to, to everybody, because it's true, that we are all sinners. It's not just the world out there that needs the gospel, it's us in here. And so often we struggle with guilt before God, don't we? You know, oh, have I prayed enough? Have I given enough? Whatever it might be. Well, Jesus is the doctor that we need. We need to come to him in our guilt and we will find the forgiveness that we are desperately in need of. What about in our attempts to tell other people about Jesus? Do we, do we subconsciously find ourselves applying a kind of pre-filter to those we pray for and seek to share the good news about Jesus with? You know, like in Britain's Got Talent or The X Factor. You know, it looks as if the contestants are appearing in front of the judges for the first time. It turns out, when you look into it, there have been pre-auditions and pre-selection with the producers before it happens in the name of making the best TV. See, if we only reach out to people who are exactly like us, then that will never change, will it? Well, as we close then, remember, Matthew is writing these verses in order to give... God's people confidence as we go with the same authority to bring the news that Jesus is king to the world. And the good news is that whatever we do, Jesus is still building his church. He's still calling sinners to follow him. And so the question is whether we will come to him ourselves and then whether we will go with him to call others, whoever they are, to do the same. Let's have a moment to reflect on that, and I'll lead us in prayer. Father God, we 
confess before you the spirit of the Pharisee within us that thinks that we're good enough as we are, that we don't need Jesus. Father, would you please help us to be humbled before you so that we rejoice that there is a saviour for sinners. We praise you for this good news that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we pray then that for us as a church that we would be able to create a culture that is where we are open and honest with each other. Because we are all sinners who need Jesus. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.